Uh, let's turn to God's Word, Isaiah chapter 40, and let's hear the Word of our God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cry, says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, 
who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let us pray. Father, in your light we see light. So we pray that you would come now and by your Holy Spirit illuminate the reading and the preaching of your word so that we might see your Son, the Lord Jesus, in all his glory. And we ask this in his name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praise, world without end. Amen. wonder for some of the young people here this morning if you've ever had this experience. When I was five years old, I was traveling back from Tanzania with my family, and we'd stopped over in Frankfurt in Germany on our way back to the UK. And as we were going through security, I got distracted and took my eyes off my parents, and they'd taken their eyes off me. And as we went through the security where we were getting our bags checked, I started to move forward thinking my dad was beside me, and I took the, the hand of this man beside me. And all of a sudden, I had a shock as I looked up and saw this stranger standing there. And I looked all around, and I couldn't see my parents. And for that very brief moment, I still remember it so clearly, I felt forgotten, forsaken. I couldn't see my dad. I couldn't hear my dad. I was all alone in a foreign country with foreign accents, with foreign voices. And here was this stranger standing beside me. I felt forgotten and forsaken. And then my dad heard my cry, and he came running and rescued me. Now, these days, he'd probably get arrested for negligence. Uh, I'd probably get a lot of money if I tried to sue him. Uh, but I still remember that feeling of forgottenness, of forsakenness. It might only have been for five seconds, but it was a horrible feeling, feeling forgotten and forsaken. Have you ever felt like that? Well, that's how Judah felt once. They were taken off into exile, forsaken 
and forgotten. Did you see that in verse 27? Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. The people of Judah felt forgotten and forsaken in exile. Forgotten. My way is hidden from the Lord. Forsaken. My right hand is disregarded by my God. Now you'll notice that Isaiah has skipped forward a number of years. Two centuries, in fact, because Judah is now in exile when they say these words in verse 27, which is well beyond Isaiah's lifetime. Isaiah's ministry began in 740 B.C. It went for about 50 or 60 years, uh, but that only takes us to about 690 or 680 B.C. The exile of Judah happened about 100 years after that in 587 B.C., well after Isaiah had died. So how is it that Isaiah is speaking about something so far in the future Well, liberal scholars say it wasn't Isaiah who wrote chapters 40 to 66. It was a second Isaiah or some of his disciples. But no, I think it was Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, who wrote these chapters. And the reason he could write these chapters is because the God he served is the God who knew the future. Isaiah 46 verse 9, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. So this is why chapters 40 to 66 can speak into the future life of Judah and Israel because God knows the future and he knows the future because he has ordained the future. Isaiah's words therefore were written ahead of time to comfort Judah when they would go into exile. And these are words of comfort for them as they would feel forsaken and forgotten. They were in exile for up to 70 years, more than a few days, more than a few weeks, more than a few years. And after 70 years, they are feeling forgotten and forsaken. And Isaiah comes to them with this prophecy, comfort, Comfort my people. Such beautiful words. Some of the words of Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort my people. Every time I go to hear Handel's Messiah, which is once a year, Becky and I make it our annual Christmas uh, uh, outing, I well up when the man stands and sings comfort. Comfort ye my people. These are some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Because chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah, as we saw at the Bible conference, are full of judgment. Yet here in chapters 40 to 66, the book turns to the topic of salvation. And do you remember the two-beat rhythm in Isaiah? Judgment, salvation. Judgment, salvation. And here is the announcement of salvation. This is the gospel in Isaiah. God saves his people through judgment for the transformation of the world. And here is the opening note of salvation. Comfort 
ye my people, comfort my people. In a sense, these words encapsulate what the whole chapter of chapter 40 is about. They, they encompass what the whole of the second half of Isaiah is about. And Isaiah shows us five things about this comfort. Number one, the good news of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Notice the double use here that conveys emotional intensity. But the words are also moving because of who it is who speaks it. Says your God. Who is this God? He is the one who put them into exile. He is the one who put them into judgment. He is the one who punished them for their sins. Judah was in exile because of their sins. We see that in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here is the word of comfort from the God who had just judged them. The God who judges is also the God who comforts. That's who speaks these words. Because the judgment didn't break Judah's relationship with God. You notice the personal pronoun? Comfort, comfort my people. Even though God put them into judgment and exile, the bond with him did not break. And this is the good news of comfort. God does not forsake us in our sin. Of course, that does not mean that we should go on sinning. God punishes. He disciplines. But that's why Judah went into exile. That's why Jesus went to the cross. But the point is that the punishment did not break the bond for Judah. They were still his people. And for us, it does not break the bond with God because Jesus has taken that punishment for us. God does not forsake us when we sin. He forgives us. He does not forsake us when we sin. He forgives us. And He does so because there is a payment for sin. You see that in verse 2? Judah had paid for their sins. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now we mustn't think that this word double means that God punished them twice over for the sins as if he was in a fit of rage. No, actually the word double here is related to the idea of folding something in half to produce two halves. It's like having sin on one side of a page and punishment on the other. And what God was saying was, I have folded over your sin into a punishment. The punishment has matched your sin. You have received double for all of your iniquity. In other words, there has been an exact payment for sin, Judah. And you are now free from that punishment. It has come to an end. God cannot punish sin more than it deserves. So the punishment is exact. And the point is that once it's exacted, then God forgives our sins. And this is the good news of comfort in the gospel. The God who judges sin. The God who will not brush sin under the carpet. 
the God who will not turn a blind eye to sin, set forth His Son as a sacrifice for sin in public, visibly for everyone to see, to show the world He takes sin seriously. And yet in that very moment of punishing sin publicly, God comes to us and offers us forgiveness for our sin. He forgives us our sin by coming to us. And that's the picture here in verses 3 to 5. Judah are still in exile. They paid for their sins, but they're still stuck in exile. And so God comes to them. This is how He completes the forgiveness, how He rescues them from their enemy. By coming to them, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now we're not told who this voice is. At this point it's not important. But what we are told is that He is coming to make a straight path for God in the wilderness. Now what does that recall? It recalls the first exodus that God is coming to rescue His people from their enemy. And nothing will deter Him, verse 4. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. All obstacles shall be removed. It will be a smooth path without hindrance. And when He comes, His glory will be revealed, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this word glory can be a bit of a tricky word to define. It really means weighty. The weightiness of God will be revealed. That is God's essential character. The very being of God. What makes God God will be revealed in this moment. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, he asked to see God's glory. What did God say? I will let all my goodness passed in front of you. This is what God is going to reveal when He comes. His goodness, His essential character, the weightiness of who He really is. And that's what His people would see. His justice to punish sin, His mercy to forgive sin. That's what God's coming to reveal, which we see when God came in the person of of Jesus Christ, whose name was Emmanuel, God with us. Behold your God, Judah. We see this goodness, this glory, when Jesus came and lived among us. John the Baptist was the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for God, preparing a people to receive God in the person of Jesus. And in the person of Jesus, God's goodness, His weightiness, His essential being was revealed. His justice was seen in the punishment for sin when Christ died on the cross. His mercy was seen in God forgiving sin because Jesus had died on the cross. You see, this punishment for Judah in exile, that they had paid the exact punishment for their sin, it was a type. It was a shadow. It was a signpost pointing to a moment when a man from Judah, a single remnant, a king, would himself take 
the punishment upon himself for his people. Judah in exile, being punished by God, was a type of Christ on the cross being punished by God. And this is the word of comfort that God comes to us with this morning. It is not a comfort for food. It's not a comfort for physical ailments. It's not a comfort for an easy life. It is a comfort for your life that has been made sick with sin. It is a comfort in your guilt, a comfort in your shame, a comfort in the miserableness of life when we sin. That is what God comes to us with. Comfort, comfort my people. This is the first thing God wants us to hear this morning. The good news of comfort. When we sin, God does not forsake us in our sin. He forgives us in our sin. And He forgives us by coming to us in the person of His Son. The second thing we see is the enduring word of comfort. Verses 6 to 8. The enduring word of comfort. Now, we hear another voice saying, cry in verse 6. Again, we don't know who it is, but Isaiah answers, what shall I say? And then he's told what to say. He's to say that people are like grass and the flowers. That is, they are not strong or sturdy. You can cut grass or pull it so easily. You can pluck a flower so quickly, and they die. As quickly as grass grows, it dies as quickly. It just takes a few hot days for the grass to turn from green to brown. Same with flowers. They grow, they blossom, and then they fade. And God says that's what we're like. That's how fragile we are. And that's what Judah needed to hear in exile. Little, broken, fragile Judah exiled in Babylon. They needed to hear that they could not save themselves. Surely the people are grass. That's the starting point for all of us. If we want to accept this word of comfort for our sin, the starting point is admitting that we are like grass. We're like the flowers of the field that fade. We have nothing in us that can heal ourselves, that can save ourselves, that can forgive ourselves. Remember Christopher Hitchens, the vehement atheist, being interviewed after he got cancer and close to his death. Uh, and while he had sort of accepted his impending death, he said that humanity would one day find the cure for cancer. I hope humanity does one day find the cure for cancer. It's a horrible disease. But it's not cancer that kills us. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of cancer. Our greatest problem is not cancer. It is sin. And we need God's help because we are like grass. We're like the flowers of the field that fades so easily. And it's what Judah needed to hear. This enduring word of comfort. People are like the grass. They don't have any uh, strength to save themselves. But the word of our God stands forever. The flowers fade, 
the grass withers, but God's word endures forever. That is this gospel word of comfort. It's not fake news. It's good news. It's not a fad. It's not a fashion for this era, 2018. No, this is true, lasting, trustworthy, good news. It's the second thing that Isaiah shows us, this enduring word of comfort. And then third, the warrior shepherd of comfort. The warrior shepherd of comfort. Isaiah returns to this theme of God's coming from verses 3 to 5 here in verses 9 to 11. We see it in verse 10. Behold, the Lord comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. So God is coming. But Isaiah first tells Jerusalem that it's good news not to be quiet about. Get up on the mountains. Shout out to the world this good news. Lift up your voice. Fear not. Behold your God. This is such good news that God is saying to Judah, don't keep it to yourself. It's such good news that God is coming to rescue you. Don't keep it to yourself. Remember when our son Ben was born in Cambridge, England, his grandparents in Australia that day were telling florists, grocers, people at petrol stations, hairdressers, that there was a boy called Benjamin born in England. I mean, did they really care? Did they need to know? But for the parents, the grandparents, it was good news. And what do you do with good news? You tell. You promote it. You proclaim it. And here is Isaiah saying, this is the best news the world has ever heard. So Judah, get up on a high mountain and shout it from the mountaintops that God is coming. That He's coming to save you. This is what would have been in the Babylonian daily the next day. Behold your God. And Isaiah gives us two pictures of God coming. Do you remember he's the great prophet who is the great painter, the great artist, who throughout this great book of Isaiah gives us all these images. Here are two images. Verse 10, he's the warrior. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Verse 11, he's a shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry, carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see the picture? A warrior whose arm is ready to fight and defend and rescue his people. And with the other arm, he gently picks up the little lamb. A warrior shepherd. That is our God. That is the way God comes to us. He has a bride on one arm and a sword in the other. One arm to nurture and shield, the other to punish and rule. That is how God comes. It's how Jesus came as a warrior fighting the world, fighting sin, fighting the devil, fighting our enemies. But he also picked up little children, held them in his hands. 
He led those with young. That is who comes to comfort us. The God of comfort is the warrior shepherd. But here's the thing. It's one thing to say all this, that he's coming. It's another thing to do it. It's very easy to make promises. It's something else to keep them. As the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And the road out of Babylon was paved with a good intention from God to come and rescue Judah and bring them back to the land. At least that's what he said he was going to do. The question is, could he rescue them? Could he fix their problem? Uh, I don't know if the children's program is played here in America. Uh, Bob the Builder. Any of the young people heard, yeah? Bob the Builder. What's the song that they sing? Can he fix it? Can he fix it? And the response comes back, yes, he can. Yes, he can. Bob, the builder, can fix it. Well, that's the question that Isaiah was asking. It's all well and good, God, for you to talk about rescuing us out of exile in Babylon. But it was the Babylonians who took us into exile, and you did not defend us. So can you really deliver? And God says, yes, I can. I am the incomparable God. That's what verses 12 to 26 are about. The incomparable God of comfort. Can He comfort His people in their sin? Can He rescue His people from their enemy? Yes, He can. He's the incomparable God. Verses 12 to 17, He is beyond all measure. The oceans are in His hand. Notice the singular. He doesn't need two hands to hold them all. Just the one. The heavens are measured by the span of His hand from His thumb to His wee finger. The nations, uh, or the, the deserts, are put in a basket. He is beyond all measure. He does not need any wisdom. Verses 13 and 14. He's never been to school or university. He doesn't need the justice system to teach him how to rule. The nations are like a drop of water in a bucket. All the sandy beaches of the world are just like God touching up the tips of continents with a bit of gold dust. This is the incomparable God. He is so immense. He is beyond worship that even if you got all the sacrifices of Lebanon together, it would not suffice as a sacrifice for him because all the nations are nothing before him. Nothing. Grasshoppers at his footstool. He is the incomparable God. Oh yes, Babylon might be great. Babylon the great. Judah, I am the incomparable God and I can save you. He's also the God beyond all comparison. Verses 18 to 20. The gods of Babylon were idols. They were made with man's hand. The point is, God was not made by any man's hand. He was not crafted or carved. He is the uncreated God. And then He is the God beyond all rivals. Verses 21 to 26. The gods of the Babylonians are deaf. They're dumb. They're blind because they've been made by man. 
God just blows on them, verse 24, like grass. But what about the rulers of the heavens, not just the gods in Babylon? The stars were viewed as gods up in the heavens. And what does God say? I put them there. One by one. And I named every single one of them. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Let me tell you what you are, little star. You are not a god. I made you. And you twinkle because I created you to twinkle. He has no rivals. Babylon the great, Babylon's idols, Babylon's princes, Babylon's stars, none compare to God. Can He redeem you, Judah? Can He comfort you in your sin? Can He rescue you from your enemy? Yes, He can. He is the incomparable God of comfort. And here's the glory of it all, brothers and sisters. Do you remember earlier on in chapter 40? Get up on the mountains. Shout it from the rooftops. Behold your God. How did this incomparable God, beyond all measure, beyond all comparison, beyond all rivals, how did he come to his people? As a babe in a manger. The God who holds the oceans in his hand was held in the hand of a young virgin. The God who put the stars in the night sky enveloped himself in the darkness of a mother's womb. The God who could measure the heavens in the span of his hand allowed his hands to be crucified on a cross. The incomparable God became one of us to comfort us. And he comforts us from a cross. And so the chapter ends, be comforted by this incomparable God. Israel complains, we are forsaken, we are forgotten by God. And God says, no, you're not. No, you're not. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men full of vitality shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Why? Because I am the incomparable God. Beyond all measure, beyond all comparison, beyond all rivals, and I am the God who has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. So can God fix us in our sin? Can he rescue us from the power of sin and death and the devil? Absolutely. He's the incomparable God. But isn't that the wonder, brothers and sisters? The incomparable God, the Creator, became a creature and hung on a cross so that you and I might receive His comfort 